Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. If you get something valuable from this episode, or if you got something valuable from a past one, I'd appreciate another share. And a five-star rating and review on iTunes would help immeasurably. Those reviews help others find the show and are really important to its continued growth. Also, I have a few spots open for new clients. So, if I can be of service, feel free to visit the ADHD Essentials website or email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. B-R-E-N-D-A-N at A-D-H-D-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S dot com. This is episode 37. In today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Sharon Celine. Dr. Celine is a licensed clinical psychologist who guides families from the maze of emotions and conflict and stress of ADHD toward successful dialogue, interventions, and connection. She's also an author, and today we're talking about her book, What Your Child with ADHD Wishes You Knew. There are many things that I liked about this book, but what I loved about it is the way it's framed. Quotes and brief personal stories from kids with ADHD are sprinkled throughout to help us better understand the impact ADHD has on them. And as you'll hear, Dr. Celine does not shy away from addressing the emotional impact of the disorder. All right, let's get rolling. There are a number of factors that led me to write this book. First of all, I grew up in a family with a brother who had undiagnosed, untreated ADHD. That was a huge challenge for my parents and also for me as a sibling. And so I came from a family where emotions were strong and intense and there was a lot of emotion and frustration regarding my brother. And I saw my parents struggle with him. I saw him struggle a lot and I couldn't really do much. I watched it. I sometimes I jumped in. I think a lot of times I tried to stay out of the fray and be as um uh you know uh, involved in my own life as possible. Many years later my brother got married and had a child and his son was diagnosed with ADHD. And it was as if the light bulb went off for him. And by then, I was a psychologist. I had finished graduate school and was uh, starting, my, starting to practice at an agency. It was as if a light bulb went off for me as well. Oh, okay. Things make a little bit more sense now. And so over time, um, because I was trained as a family therapist and I work a lot with kids and teens and young adults, I started to focus on kids with ADHD because I think it interested me and it felt familiar. The title of the book is What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. Different perspective than I think every other ADHD book that I've encountered. I might be failing to remember one because I do have ADHD. But a lot of the time these books are aimed at 
parents in terms of what the parents need to know. Right. This is a little different because it's saying it's what your kid needs you to know. It's not just what you think you need to know as a parent. That's right. And I think that comes from years of, of being a clinician, working in schools, spending time with kids. And frankly, that early, you know, that my early childhood of, of seeing my brother struggle, he had something he wanted people to understand and they couldn't get it. And he didn't know how to express it. One of the things that I've seen over and over in the families I've worked with or the parents I talk to or even the teachers I consult with is that there's a way in which the parents are operating on one level with their messages and the kids are operating on another level. And the messages aren't actually being um, received on the same channel, so to speak. And so I wanted to write a book that helped foster improved communication and collaboration so that everyone could work together for solutions rather than what I see a lot is that adults make decisions about these kids without asking them, even little ones, about what makes sense to them. And they don't have buy-in. And for kids with ADHD who spend so many hours of every day listening to what they could be doing differently from someone else, they want to have buy-in. And sometimes the parents are solving a problem that is not the same problem that the kid is experiencing. Exactly. Or it is not the same problem that the kid really wants to solve. So, you know, usually if, I, if parents sit down and they have a list of a bazillion things they want their kids to do differently, kids actually have a list of a few things they want themselves to do differently. Basically, 99% of the time there's overlap. And what I like to encourage parents to do is to start with a thing that overlaps. Because your list of of 12 things that you want your child to do differently is, is a solid list, but people can only change one thing at a time. And for kids with ADHD, when they feel like they can't do this right, they can't do that right, they need to work on this, it's overwhelming and they don't try. That one thing at a time is really important because often parents are seeing three, four, five things, and they're all sort of connected and they all sort of play into the problem, but there's three, four, five different things. And so they say to the kid, we need to do this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. And the kid is just like, how am I going to, I don't even remember what the first thing was that you said I need to do, let alone how I'm going to do it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they want their child to get off the computer easily. They want their child to clean their room. They want their child to put their, you know, wet towel from the bathroom on the hook and not on the floor. Those are a lot of things, mm -hmm. you know, which is the most important thing. Usually it's funny, but it'll be, you know, everyone will agree that this, the, the arguing, the fighting, the yelling, the consequences about getting off the computer are the thing that they would like to change first. Okay, great. You know, I have a family. That's what they decided, that they could live with the towel on the floor and the messy room if, if there were fewer arguments getting off the computer. And do you have any advice on how to help kids get off the computer with fewer arguments? Absolutely. Many, many families sort of happen into computers and technology and they don't know how to put boundaries around it. And then they struggle when, there's, when it's needed, when it's time to actually uh, assert uh, limits because the privileges are, 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 are out of hand. And so I think what's important is that when you start to introduce technology or if you've already introduced technology, that you have a regrouping. 
that you decide with your, you know, by yourself or with your partner, if you have one, how do you want technology to, to play a role in your family's life? Then you establish times when the computer can be used. And I suggest an easy off program, easy on, easy off. You set a time when the computer can be used. When it's time to get off, you give a warning. And that warning has to be a face-to-face, look-in-my-eyes kind of thing. Like, this is your warning. A lot of parents use timers, but that the children aren't paying attention to those timers because they're engaged with the computer. They need to look at a human being. And then you can come back, and they ease off the computer more, more effectively if there's something they're going to that is interesting to them. If, it's, if they're, you're telling them to get off the computer and do their homework, you've totally ruined <laughs> the order. <laughs> you know, the, the computer-free time should be the reward for doing the homework, should be the incentive. But you, you basically say, oh, you can use yourself to ease off the computer. If you, when it's time to get off the computer, we'll play a quick game of cards, and then we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you get off the computer with no yelling, you can have after dinner of uh, we'll watch a, sh- a show together, you know, or we'll um, we'll play a game, or I'll read you a story. Some something that is equally exciting to them. And you mentioned earlier the importance of getting buy-in from yes. the kids, right, around whatever right. the problem may be. That's especially true here with the screen use. We're going to regroup and reestablish the norms and rules around screen use. We have to have their buy-in. It can't be the parents going, and you're only going to use the computer for one hour a day unless it's schoolwork. Sometimes it actually has to be that because what I've seen is that parents will sit down and have a conversation with parents, child, and myself and say, okay, how much computer time do you think you should actually have? And, you know, a child will say, as much as I want. And the parents will say an hour and a half. <laughs> and, you know, what I encourage the parents to do is to say, okay, you want your child to have an hour and a half. Start with an hour and then you can give a bonus half hour later. You know, if you do your homework on time, if you do your homework without an argument and, you know, you cooperate, then you can have, you earn that extra half hour. Right. So you, you, you set up one hour a day that's a gimme. You get an hour a day, period. The extra half hour is earned when you've completed your homework without yelling or you've unpacked your backpack or whatever it is that you post on a list in your refrigerator (laughs) so that your child can refer back to it because kids with ADHD really need those visual cues. So my thinking is similar. I'm not not arguing. Mm. I guess my perspective on it is I would like to have a negotiation with my kid. The kid is like, I want to play as much as I want. And I'm like, "Mm, I feel like an hour is enough, but I'm willing to go up to an hour and a half. I want to then have a conversation with my kid around, well, let's look at when is it going to be okay for you to use the screen? Can we agree that after the homework is done, that's when we're going to be able to do it? Okay, cool. We get, maybe we get that far. And now we start looking at timelines, right? Like, well, you have to go to bed at nine o'clock. Hard and fast rule. You're not using the screen before bedtime for an hour. So you're not using it after eight o'clock. Homework isn't usually done until six o'clock. So we just narrowed it down to two hours. We're stuck in a two hour window. I'm willing to give you an hour. <laughs> and they're like, well, I want two. And now we can sort of negotiate and see if we can get to that hour and a half hour time. Does that make sense as a strategy? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if we sort of step, take a giant step backwards, the thing that I would say is that th- this idea, you know, in my book, the five, the, I talk about the five C's of effective yeah. ADHD parenting. 
So the first C is self-control. You have to manage yourself and your reactions before you can help your child manage themselves. Mm -hmm. The second C is compassion. And that means really understanding that kids with ADHD want to do well, but they don't always have access to their own resources to do so or access to external resources to do so. If they can do well, they want to, but they, they don't often have what they need to do that. So that's compassion in terms of how can I sort of align with my child and knowing that they really want to do the right thing. They just can't get there. Mm -hmm. The third C, and this is the one that I think is related to what you're talking about in terms of negotiation, is about collaboration. And I feel like collaboration is, is the background and the foundation for everything. Because what we're talking about is working with your child. Obviously, you're the adult. You set the rules. You decide, okay, I can live with an hour and a half of screen time a day. But you sit down and you talk about the plan with them. And you allow them to have ideas. You, they may have a reaction. You talk about what feels good to them. And then you think about it and decide if that is what you want to do. But you work together. And that collaboration is, is really critical for kids and particularly for kids with ADHD because then they have a buy-in. Oh, this is what we agreed on. I'm going to follow through on that because when I follow through on our agreement, I get X. Mm -hmm. And so these incentives, which are incentives that you talk about and you agree on, are external, right? Because kids with ADHD don't necessarily have intrinsic motivation developed. That's one of their challenges with having ADHD. And then they move towards those external goals. Then we have consistency, which is doing what you say you're going to do as much as you can. I mean, no one's perfect. So the idea is you can't do it all the time, but as much as you can. The other part of consistency for me, which is equally important, is consistent effort. You may not actually achieve the goal. You may not have every day an easy off the computer. But if you have an easy off the computer three times a week and previously you had zero, then that's an improvement. And to, to really pay attention to those efforts, like, hey, I noticed you got off the computer today when I asked. High five. I like that. And then the last C is celebration, which is just noticing efforts, noticing accomplishments, giving praise because the negativity that these kids hear is so great. Yeah. It's that high five that you just mentioned. Even that's right. a celebration. It's a small one, but it's still right. a powerful one that can, that can be pretty motivating for a kid. It is motivating. And I think a lot of times parents with kids with ADHD are so overwhelmed because we're stressed in our society. Raising children is really hard. And we have our jobs and all of the things around running a family and hopefully having a social life and friends. And it's overwhelming. And then we have a child who may or may not be cooperating. You're not sure. This may be a trigger. That may be a trigger. There might be an explosion or a meltdown when you'd least expect it. It's overwhelming. So it's not always easy to remember to do that high five or you know give a hug when uh, when you need it. I had a little girl I worked with and um, we put together a list for the morning and, you know, her three things that she had to do. And she was read, she was able to read. She was in third grade. And at the end of the list, the, the parents said to her, what would you like? You know, when you finished your three things, what would you like? And the girl said, a hug. And so every morning 
she did her three things because she really wanted to have that hug. I was interested to see what would happen. And the next week they came in and the girl said, I didn't know there were so many ways to give a hug. <laughs> it sounds so, you know, it sounds in some ways sort of so simple, but it, it was very touching for me. That's awesome. And poking around in the celebration side of things a little bit more, sometimes our kids tell us stuff and we don't respond to it in a way that is validating for them. Yeah. And that's a piece of where the celebration comes from, right? Like if, right. if a kid comes home and is like, hey, I got an 80 on my math test. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay. Right. You just, they just threw a bid to you. Like they're bidding for your attention. They're bidding for your approval. And you did nothing with that. And so even though you didn't belittle them, they're still feeling rejected. Right. And I think that actually is a great, and that, that idea of making a bid is so, is so uh, important. And it, come, it actually comes from couples therapy, right. um, where you make a bid to your partner, right? Yeah, but it still so, matters in all relationships. So. It matters in all relationships, exactly. And so, you know, when a child says, hey, I got an 80, and you're like, okay, it's a diminishment. And so when we talk about the emotional side of having ADHD, what I think parents don't necessarily always remember is the shame and the belief that I'm not as good as other people, that I'm not as good at school, I miss things, I don't catch on the way other kids do. And some of these are overt and some of these are really subtle. Barbara Fredrickson, who is a psychologist who wrote a book called Positivity, In her research, she found that really the ideal ratio of positive statements to negative statements is three to one. John Gottman found in relationships uh, with couples, it was five to one. So, you know, somewhere in there is is, is the perfect ratio. I think that kids with ADHD do not hear five to one or three to one. You know, if anything, they hear one good thing and maybe 15 negative things. And and a piece of that, which is where I was going with the bids, yeah, is that when they don't meet our expectations, we point that out. But when they do meet our expectations, well, they just met the expectation. And we don't feel like we need to make a deal out of it. And sometimes we intentionally don't make a deal out of it because that's expected and I shouldn't celebrate it because somehow that's doing something wrong. I don't, I don't really understand how, but I know people view it that way. And so right. sometimes the kid then tells us that they met the expectation because they need some credit, they need some validation, and we don't give it to them. And well, uh, that, that does damage too. Exactly. It's like, it's like when you make a bid, like you put yourself out there and then you're hanging and then right. no one's there and you sort of drop down. It's kind of like Wiley e. Coyote you know, and Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. I'm dating myself a bit, a little bit, but you know, he would run to the edge of the cliff and he would keep running and he'd be hanging out there. And all of a sudden, you know, nobody, he would look down, there was no ground and boom, he would fall. And it's kind of like that, you know, Hey, I got an 80. Okay. Or uh, you show up in the car on time. It's not, there's no, it's like you did what you were expected. I have one father who said, why should I reward my child or notice when he does what he's supposed to do? Four sessions to try to explain over and over again how, you know, they, there's so much negative feedback that they need to fill up their cup. They need to fill up their approval cup a little bit because they can't do it for themselves. They need you to do that. They need you to put a drop in here and there. So over time, they are, they, these kids can say, oh, hey, you know what? 
I can do things right. And people see it. They see the, the stuff that I do, not just the stuff that I don't do. I've said to my kids, my kids went through a, I shouldn't say it that way. I went through a phase where my kids would say something random, right? Like, oh, I had a bologna okay. sandwich for lunch or whatever. Being silly and sort of joking around with them, I'd be like, you're a bologna sandwich. Right. It was funny for like a minute and then they hated it. Yeah. And I carried it a little too long, right? Mm-hmm. And so one day we were walking into the Y and I don't remember what they were talking about. Um, if they might go with the sliding doors or whatever, right? So they're, this, they're like, oh, it's the sliding door. And I thought in my head, you're a sliding door, but I didn't say it. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, hey, guys, you need to give me credit. And they were like, huh? Because <laughs> nothing had happened. And, right. I, and I said to them, I was like, I just almost said you're a sliding door, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me like I was insane. And, right. I, and I turned that around, though, and I said to them, because here's the deal. I need credit for that because it will help me not do that again in the future. And mm-hmm. you guys need to know that there are times when you inhibit something, like when you don't do something that you want to do because you mm-hmm. know, it's not a good choice. And I have no idea that you didn't do that. So sometimes you got to tell me that you didn't mm. do the thing that you wanted to do because you knew it was a bad choice. And that way I can give you credit for making a good choice that I otherwise don't even know happened. That's exactly right. Because there are a million times where kids with ADHD don't do something or they may actually, you know, exert some self-control. And none of those times are ever recognized because no one knows about them. And that's true for all people, actually. I think yeah. we, we all have times where we, sh- we, we think about doing this, but we don't do it. And for these kids, because they hear so much negative feedback or they receive messages, signals from other kids that are negative, you know, interestingly, I was talking with my brother um, recently about our, our childhood and he said to me, you know, I never felt like I fit in. I mean, this is a kid, a, a guy, he, was, he played Division I soccer in college, you know, but he, he missed those social cues. He had a lot of anxiety about social, you know, friendships. And so there were probably many times where he didn't say or do something because he, he monitored himself and that those were, were never really as important as the times where, you know, a child has a meltdown and everybody in the class sees it and gets sent down to see the principal. Friendships are a thing that come up in the book. It's something that you discuss a fair amount. And, and one of the things you talk about with regard to, to friendships is you've got some exercises sort of sprinkled throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And one of them is a reflection on friendship with your child or teen. And it says, in a quiet moment, perhaps at bedtime, start a casual conversation with your son or daughter on the general topic of friendship. How are things going with so-and-so? Who are you hanging out with at recess or lunch? How are you getting along with this other kid? And fill in the blanks for those listening at home. One of the things that I loved the most about this, this is like a, uh, an element of working with folks with ADHD that is key but easy to miss. And it's that very beginning of how you describe that exercise. Mm. Where it says, in a quiet moment, perhaps at bedtime, start a casual conversation. All of that contextualizing is enormously important, but we rarely make a big deal out of it because we do this professionally and it sort of goes without saying, yes. sort of know that it's there. But, mm-hmm. but that whole notion that it's a quiet moment and it's 
maybe at bedtime, like you want to have this conversation in sort of an intimate, intimate environment because it's a very personal, very vulnerable conversation to have. Right. This is, it's not a dinner table conversation. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, it's not a con. I mean, it's possible that it's a conversation when you're in the car, maybe if your child can sit in the front seat and isn't on their phone, but in general, it's kids with ADHD, particularly bedtime is a sweet time that a lot of parents, I think by the time, you know, it's like, please just go to sleep already. I'm very tired myself and I want 20 minutes to read my book or talk to my, my friend or talk to my partner. But that's a very precious, those are precious moments because those are times when your child is slowing down physically, you know, getting ready to go to sleep and can open up. I've also found that for teens, bedtime it, toward the end of the evening often is at 10 o'clock is when they want to have their most important conversation with you. Basically, I have one mother said, I need to go to sleep by 9.30. That's when I go to sleep. And I said, well, what can I tell you? You know, your daughter wants to talk to you at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. You know, you need to try to figure out how you can stay up until 10 so you could talk to her for a half hour. That's when she's ready. And so that's hard for parents because again, we're so busy and we're so pressured that we want our kids to kind of be available to, to talk to us when we're available. And it just doesn't always happen that way. So yes, ideally that would be great. But if that's not when your child is reaching out and ready for you, then I encourage you to try to make a shift so that that can work. I do want to say parenthetically that the car is a great time if you can get your child off the phone to have a conversation. It's not face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. but they are a captive audience. And the more casual it can be, the better. And that's especially true for boys. Completely especially true for boys. And in terms of the 10 o'clock conversation, one of the things I've talked to my clients about is if your kid is trying to have an important conversation with you that late at night, it is probably considerably more important than you think it is. Mm -hmm. Because what's happened is more than likely, their executive functions have finally worn down to the point where whatever shields they had up around this conversation that were keeping them from talking to you about it, those mm -hmm. shields have finally worn down enough mm -hmm. that the impulse to have this conversation is defeating the hesitancy and the fear that's preventing them from having it. Have that conversation because that's an important one. And it's probably one that's got a lot of vulnerability hiding inside of it. Absolutely. And that's what I was saying. Like if to, to this one mother, I was like, look, if your child is trying to talk to you at nine 30 or 10 o'clock at night, that's important. You know, mm -hmm. there's something there that she, she's trying to communicate with you. And I think that that vulnerability is an interesting thing that I would like to say something about, because one of the things I've noticed about kids with ADHD is they, they hide their vulnerability. They hide their vulnerability because they, they want to make the mark. You know, they want to fit in, they want to achieve, and they have their doubts about their abilities to do so. Mm -hmm. And so they hide uh, behind sometimes a, an aggressive attitude, sometimes a defiant attitude. And in those moments before bed, 
I had one six foot two father and one six foot you know, teenage son who basically they fought pretty much every waking hour except before bed. When the father would come, when the kid would say, can you come in? And the father would sit on the bed and they would like talk about the Red Sox. And sometimes they would talk about a few other things. And it was when they connected. And those moments were what we focused on how to increase that connection and other times. And that hiding vulnerability, not to harp on this, but is especially true for boys. Yes. That's one of the reasons I talk about it on the podcast is because I'm a guy and I'm not supposed to. So part of my job is to break down that stereotype and ruin that cultural norm. (laughs) Absolutely. Because the boy code is all about being invulnerable. The boy code is about you're showing that, you know, you're okay, that you're, that you're cool, that you're strong, that things don't get to you. And um, whereas girls have, have more leeway. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I like to call the boy code toxic masculinity. Um, It is. It's very toxic. (laughs) It is. It's very damaging. One of the reasons that I spend a lot of, that I spend time talking about, you know, social relationships, friendships in the book is because this is an area where I see kids really struggling and where I see parents want to help their kids, but um, either don't have the information they need or somehow start to over-engage in the friendship department. Like they start to tell their children what they should do in their relationships. And most kids don't necessarily want to be told what to do in their relationships, but they're willing to talk about their struggles in the relationships and listen possibly to some suggestions or brainstorming. What else do you think you could do differently? Or what was that like for you when that person said, blah, blah, blah. In our generation, we tend to get into how did you feel about that? And kids aren't so interested in going to how I felt about it right away. Mm -hmm. You can start sort of a little bit on the, the external layer and then work your way down. You'll get to some of that juicy stuff you want. But what I, I see sometimes parents is they go right into like, well, how did you feel about that? And did that make you feel mad? And it's a little bit too intense sometimes for kids. Pulling out of this and circling back to your five C's, mm. which again, were self-control, compassion, collaboration, consistency, and celebration. One of the things you mention with regard to the five C's is that they really rely on strength-based thinking and attentive awareness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Absolutely. So strength-based thinking is paying attention to the aspects of your child that you like and that they like and that they do well. And it's, it kind of circles back to that positivity, that you notice um, what some of their strengths are and you develop those so that those strengths can be used to help compensate for some of the weaknesses first. And then secondly, the kids can kind of lean in to those strengths to basically identify with those strengths. Mm -hmm. And attentive awareness is being able to notice what's going on and speak about what's going on without judging. So I notice that this is happening instead of why are you doing that? Right? Hey, you know what? I noticed that you're having trouble getting off the computer. Let's sit down and talk. Let's have, let's talk about that later tonight. Not right now. You come from a position of curiosity instead of a position of 
only authority. That curiosity aspect can be tricky because I can ask the exact same question with a different tone of voice and it is either curious or sort of authoritative and judging, judgmental. Exactly. I mean, what I really work, encourage parents to do is to start statements with, I'm wondering, or I notice, or, hey, can you tell me about, rather than statements or, you know, you do this all the time. Why do you keep doing this? Or I, you know, this is, this, I'm tired of this. Those are all real things. And I think there's nothing wrong with saying to your child, I'm feeling very frustrated right now. I'm going to go to the bathroom, which is what I encourage parents to do 90% of the time for their timeouts when they're frustrated. Go to the bathroom, wash your hands. Maybe if you have a little magazine, leaf through it, get yourself calmed down. Then you can go back and deal with your child. <laughs> but when you're all triggered and stimulated and reactive, what kids told me over and over again is it doesn't help them. It makes it worse for them. You know, it, it doesn't help them settle. They're, they become more reactive. One of my favorite things about this book is the sheer number of quotes that you have from kids. I, I've read enough ADHD books to know that most of them have case studies. Right. And a case study does nothing for me. It's, it very rarely helps me understand the emotional side of what's going on for that person. Usually it's a little more fact-based and, and just it's the nature of writing a case study is that it tends to be dry. And that pulls me out of feeling connected to the person that I'm supposed to be reading about. In your book, you've got quotes and you've got not case studies, but descriptions of situations and kids, which mm -hmm. feel a little more accurate. And um, thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you for that because it really helped me engage with this book in a different way. I just really, really appreciate the fact that you have it set up that way. Thank you very much. I really appreciate hearing that. When I was trying to get an agent for this book early on, one woman wrote back to me. She said, you need to redo this book. It's too many quotes. You just have to do, you know, one person per chapter and do a case study. And I was like, I am not working with you because that is not what I want. I want people to be able to read this book and see themselves, see situations that are familiar to them. And that's why there's such variety, because that is what will speak to, to you as a reader. One real quick that struck me was, I think what really disappoints people and hurts people is that I'm late so often because they take it personally. Me losing things disappoints people. I bottle it up and get really frustrated with myself about what's going on. I never like to think about it, so I just avoid it. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's so much pain in there. At the same time, it's completely ADHD in a nutshell. You know, that, that, that sort of speaks to that vulnerability, you mm -hmm. know, that, you know, again, I feel like what we often miss the, as adults who are living or working with kids with ADHD is, is the intense vulnerability that they have about themselves and the challenges that they experience with their ADHD brains and with their executive functioning deficits, the shame and the guilt uh, around disappointing people, being a disappointment to yourself is very intense for these kids. And I think a lot of times we, we forget that. I agree. Listeners know about my wall of awful model. Yes. It's the shame and guilt. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's the trauma of ADHD, really. It's the trauma of the repeated failure. 
Exactly. And I that's what I like about your wall of awful as well, because, you know, having ADHD is not trauma, is, is not trauma with a capital T. You know, it's not, a, you know, a, a single incident trauma. It's little teeny traumas over time that are repeated that then establish patterns of, of negative thinking where kids then shame themselves or put themselves down. The, the external voices become the internal voices. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to try to turn that around for people. One of the most powerful thoughts that I've encountered since becoming a parent um, is the whole idea that as a parent, your voice becomes your child's inner voice. Yes. And it's not all of the, their inner voice, obviously, but it's a major component of the, what their inner voice will be as they age. That's a steep responsibility as far as I'm concerned. So very. And I will say for myself as a parent, uh, my, my daughter is 19, my son is 23. I have some regrets about some of the things that I said. <laughs> and, you know, to my credit, I've apologized for those things. You know, I think that's part of being real with your kid. You know, I, I don't think people should be, you know, fake happy and fake praise. I think the idea here is for authentic connection. And that's appropriate. So yes, you can be really angry at your child, but you will have to modulate yourself and you can talk about your anger later. But in that moment, you know, if you can't control yourself, go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, and, and just being mindful of time and recognizing yes. that some of our listeners might have to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm, yes. Um, um, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I would really encourage parents to have compassion for themselves, first of all, that it's challenging and often hard to raise kids with ADHD because sometimes it's like parenting on steroids. You know, you just, you're on longer and with more detail than you may have expected. And to remember that kids, kids want to do well if they can. And if they're not, they're sending you some messages with their bodies and words that they need more support, that they need different kinds of strategies, and to really work with them to figure out what those are. And my final thing is to encourage parents to do more of what works. That's that strength-based approach. Keep leaning into, keep fostering situations that are working and do more of them. Figure out why they're working and apply those to the situations that aren't. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.